Welcome back to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined today by Chris Bouquet. How are you doing, Chris? Getting back into the swing of the new school year? Yes, it's always an exciting time of year at the beginning of the school year because it's, you know, trying to find where all the students are. Well, now I found where they are. And now it's trying to figure out, really figuring out where uh, the teachers are with their knowledge of AAC, right? I mean, some of them have been actually doing it for a while. And so they have some some knowledge, but assistants are new, uh, administrators are new. And then, you know, there's, of course, teachers that are not at all familiar. And so they trying to figure out where their knowledge level is kind of a, a fun part of the job and you get to move them on to the next step. How about you? How's school year for you? Did you get your schedule set? Uh, the scheduling, it's still working itself out uh, slowly <laughs> but surely. But yeah, it's always, um, it's always a fun and stressful time of year. But you know, it's, it's exciting because I feel like you have, it's new opportunities and it's, everyone kind of starts with a fresh slate and um, is refreshed. So I'm just getting in there and meeting with new teachers and kind of explaining what we were working on all summer and how we can start incorporating things into the classroom. And um, yeah, so I'm really excited. I actually just took a new um, contracting position at a brand new school in LA. Um, and I'm kind of going to be helping the entire school, an entire school for kids with complex communication needs. So it's going to start mm-hmm. off really small, um, but really having a, a pulse on what's going on in a classroom. Cause I go into classrooms, but you know, I'm not, working in classrooms all day long. And uh, so I'm really excited to kind of help support core words and all these ideas that I have for a classroom setting because, you know, I kind of, I come into a classroom, but it's not my classroom. So I'm really, I'm excited. How many classrooms are there in this school? Because you're supporting the entire school? Yeah. So it's, it's a small start. I think there's only maybe like 10 or 11 kids that are going to start there. Um, And then once they kind of refine everything, they're going to keep expanding it. So I'm not sure. There's there's a lot of details that are yet to be determined. And school starts in like two weeks. So I'm hoping that we uh, we get everything ironed out. But it's an exciting opportunity, and I'm really pumped to to be to be asked to do something like this. And it's definitely going to um, challenge me in a lot of good ways. So I'm I'm pumped. Yeah, I cannot wait to hear more about how it goes. Yeah, okay, keep us informed. I will, and I'm sure I'll bring lots of like fun anecdotes, school anecdotes to to the podcast. So, um, but I'm really excited today, Chris. We're we're interviewing Jill Center and Matt Bod, and honestly, it was such a great interview. I was able to hop on at the last minute and, you know, Chris had set up the interview and, and sent out a text message and I'm like, yes, I actually have availability. Um, and we ended up talking a lot, um, about caregivers and, and communication partner training. Um, and they referenced the impact model. And I thought that we would talk a little bit about that before we head into the interview about what the impact model is and, you know, kind of some, some cliff notes before we, we, we dive deep. Yeah. Well, so the impact model is something that I learned about, uh, a couple of years ago, it's one of those things like, I don't know, like you ever have a conversation with somebody and, and they go, have you seen this TV show? Or, you know, have you listened to this? Or you read this book? Or have you listened to this music? And you're like, yeah, I should put, I should do that. And then you never do. And then someone else mentions it again. And then someone else mentions it again. And before you know it, you've heard about it three or four or five times. And you're like, I really need to check that out. And that's sort of been like the impact model for me. Like I, uh, maybe the first place I heard it was, you know, maybe flying through Twitter. But then where I really learned about it was that I participated in a research club, if you will. So the idea was that uh, everyone would group, sort of like a book club, uh, where you read the book and then you talk about it, you know, or like a wine club where you taste the wine and then you, you know, is that, is that how that works? I think, anyway. Um, so I did a, was part of this research club where we all had to pick a research article to read about and then summarize it and then we would do like a webinar kind of talking about what the research was that we read. And so that's where I was like, I need to know more about the impact model. I've been hearing about it and hearing about it. Plus, um, I was really starting to understand that communication partners uh, were the key to success, right? For so long, uh, maybe five or six years ago in my practice, I was thinking about it's all about selecting the right device. And it's all about then uh, implementing the device, which of course are are important components. I'm not... uh, you know, minimizing those. But in order for any system to be successful, the communication partner has to be the one doing the implementation. And so how do we train those people? And that was really 
kind of my role in, in the school district. So um, I read the, the, the impact model. I, I, where it first came out was this article by uh, Jennifer Kent Walsh and David McNaughton back in 2005, I think. That's the, that's the article that I read, but that's um, uh, the first one that I, that I think was introduced called Communication Partner Instruction in AAC. Present Practices and Future Directions, uh, which, of course, we'll put that link in the show notes so people can read about it. And what they really talk about, without breaking down the impact model, because I think it's even better if we, we look at it, and really Jill and Matt are going to be talking about a version of that in, in, in the interview coming up. But what it really means is take these communication partners, and you can't just go in and have this like uh, like a like a bulldozer come in and say, Hey, this is how you have to do AAC and then just do it. And then, okay, good luck. You know, you have to have more of a ongoing coaching approach that it takes a step, a step-by-step approach for doing it. And they kind of lay out this eight step approach, you know, the I, the M, the P, the A, the A, the C and the T um, the, of the impact model. It's this step-by-step approach to implementing AAC or to teaching communication partners how to implement AAC. I loved how you, there's a few things that I loved about what you just said. One, I love that you are very open about your evolution, right? I think that we all are in constant states of learning and what we thought, you know, a few years ago, we now realize like, oh, maybe not, Um, you know, communication partners are really important to success. And I think that that's something that I've also learned as I've gone along and realized when I'm so focused on, you know, the kid and the system and kind of very narrow focus, it doesn't work. It, you know, if we don't involve everybody and make sure everybody feels confident, then, you know, the progress just isn't there. And so I think that's, it's really great that you shared that because you know, I, I know we have listeners out there who might feel a little unsure. Um, I also was really relating to when you were talking about the, the TV show. I don't watch a lot of TV, so I always get that question. And when I was younger, I used to be like, yeah, I've seen it, even though yeah. I never saw it. Uh, and I think we do the same thing when it comes to, you know, continuing education and, and theories and concepts and models. Um, you know, someone's like, oh, are you familiar with this person or that model? And, um, you know, it's okay. It's okay if you're not familiar with it. And we all have like a laundry list of things that we need to research. I mean, honestly, I probably have 50 things right now on a, a sheet of paper that I need to look into because I've heard people talk about it and I'm like, I need to be in the know. Uh, but the reality is we, we can't know it all. We don't have enough time and energy and, um, you know, so we just have to do the best we can. And I guarantee if you're listening to this podcast, you're already, you know, halfway there because you care enough to listen to us every week. Um, so I just think that's such an important thing. That was the, the takeaways. Um, obviously if we're talking about the impact model, you know, it's, it's so interesting to me to kind of break down these processes into something that's easy, like an acronym. And Jill and Matt in the interview talk about s'mores um, and how everyone kind of laser focuses on that. Uh, but it's such a it's such a small piece of a of a larger puzzle. And I think that was really funny because I was thinking about it after the fact, and I thought. You know, I think it's just because acronyms are easy and, and if we can make things easier for people and easier to follow and, and digest, then I think, I think it, it makes sense and, and you're more likely to hold on to it uh, in your brain. So I thought that was something that was really funny. Yeah, you know, Rachel, they, they, they mentioned that in the podcast. They've mentioned it to us before the podcast, and they put it like in the correspondence back and forth that s'mores is just a small part of, what they, of the whole thing, right? But it's, it's so, so true. People remember that because it's a mnemonic, right? Just like when uh, Tabby Jones Wollaber was on, right? And Master Pal, you can remember that because it's a mnemonic, and it helps you, and people latch on to those. Um, and it's also, it'd be really so much simpler if we could just do that, right? Oh, geez, if we could just do s'mores, then, then we win. But what they're, the message that comes across in this interview, I think, is you can't just do that. There's an eight-step approach here. And if you just take one little part, yeah, it's better than doing nothing, but it's, it's not the whole thing. You won't get the, as good results if you're just picking little parts of it. And the other thing that I think that comes out in this interview, which I think is so critical, 
is that right now, as people are listening to this, they might go, yeah, eight steps. Sure. When am I going to have time to do go eight steps and train people with eight steps? And we talk about that a little bit about how much time does it really take when you break down these eight steps into small component parts? There's not like you do all eight steps at once. It's eight steps over a period of time. And so, um, Really, it's not as long as people think uh, to, to do, but it does take a little bit of time to develop it, you know, to get the materials in place and uh, uh, to, to learn how to do a ongoing coaching sort of model, like the impact model or the one that Jill and Matt are going to talk about here in the interview. So Chris, I have a question for you. So I'm just kind of trying to, I always try and think through the lens of our listeners. And if I'm a listener and I don't know what the impact model is, um, hopefully by the end of this episode, I'll have a better idea. Uh, But how do I use this in my practice? Like how do I, you know, have to look at this and figure out action steps for each, each component? Like how do we actually use this model? Yeah. Okay. So this is an excellent question, Rachel. And I, I don't want to pretend that I'm doing it well, you know, like I have, uh, I do all eight all the time in every situation. Uh, so here's how I've sort of interpreted it in my own practice, and maybe that will help other people. Like, okay, well, this is a place I could start. I realized that it, that it couldn't be just a one and done, I come in and do a training, okay? So now I have to do multiple trainings. That's step one. So what do those multiple trainings look like? Well, the, the, Instead of taking eight steps, my modified impact model is maybe three steps to start, knowing that I want to get to eight steps somewhere down the line, but I got to start somewhere and I don't have uh, the, it all down yet. So step one is uh, I, I try and invite teachers to have an ownership of this sort of learning process to understand that I'm not going to call this a training that we're going to do. I'm going to call it coaching, which means it's, you don't just coach once, you're ongoing coaching. Um, that coaching means we're gonna. I'm gonna. I need a commitment from you to spend some time with me, and, and some of that is going to have to be on a, a little pullout basis, so we can re- no kids, no distractions, uh, as much time as you can give me, or as, but I'll take whatever you can give me. We will look at specific skills. Um, so that might be like specific skills being like how do I read a book with a child that has a uh, augmentative communication device how or another skill is least to most prompting right how do I prompt a student do I just grab their hand and do it or do I like look at their their board like what's the way to prompt them through it um, so that I'm making sure that that uh, I'm not just overtaking them so those are skills that it that it takes for pe- it takes time for people to learn and that's through this coaching so one is this investment from people and then spending time with me in a kind of a pull-out model. And then two, okay, once you're with me, we're going to now maybe do some goofy role play. We're going to look at least to most prompting and you try it and then uh, uh, with me and we just, not, you know, we just pretend I'm the student and so you can practice in what's sort of like a safe atmosphere. Then you're going to go into the classroom and you're going to actually try it or maybe you'll watch me try it first and then you, and then you try it. And so that's kind of the three phases is one commitment two a little bit of pull out and then three push in where maybe I do it and you watch me and then you do it and I watch you and then maybe a fourth component would be let's reflect on it you know which is not exactly the impact model they they go about and Jill and Matt will talk about this uh, in much more depth about like pre-testing and post-testing and video modeling and I'm not there yet but I'm working towards it I'm not just going I realize that if I don't get closer to that than I'm, than I'm, what am I doing? You know? I completely agree. And I feel the same way. I, first, I think you have to figure out who you're dealing with and where you're coming from. Right. So if you're used to, for example, a pullout model where you're going into a classroom, you're pulling a kid out and that's what you have. So, I mean, that's kind of far away from where we're going, right. From the impact mm-hmm. model, you know, I think you need to start maybe just pushing in a little bit more and, you know, starting to have those conversations with the teachers. Um, You know, so I I think that the value of the impact model for me is here's where I want to be. And I love how you said I'm not there yet because I'm not there yet either, Chris. Um, You know, I think it's hard to get there um, with the constraints that we have on our time and resources and all these things that, that play into it. Right. We, we, we know what best practice is, but 
it's achieving that best practice with limited resources. Um, that's where the challenge comes in. But I think we can look at the impact model as a way, as a, as a golden standard, if you will, um, to be striving towards and, and figuring out, like, how can I make this work and how can I get closer to the eight steps? Um, maybe I'm only at one step right now, but hopefully in, you know, in the next couple of months, I'll, I'll get to two steps. And, and I also think it's, it's kind of a, a school by school or teacher by teacher basis too. Cause some of the classrooms I go into, the teachers are like, no, like take, take them out and bring them back. Um, so if like, I'm starting with a teacher like that, you know, I'm going to be starting in a different place. And, um, I think that we just kind of have to take those things into account because it's all, it's like the same, same thing with the kids that we work with. It's all about individual differences. Totally. I'll, I'll give you um, some other like a story here is that ha- having done this last year is where I really, really started it uh, in a couple of different schools. Uh, some things that have happened is that I had this vision in my mind of what it would look like, like, okay, come out, we'll have our, our time together, then I'll come in, we'll schedule a time where I come in, you're going to watch me do this least to most prompting as we, whatever activity we're doing, I can do least to most prompting. Hey, you watch me. I had this vision of what it would look like. And then what happens is because it's real life, you know, is that I'd schedule myself to come in. I make sure I'm going to be here on this day. I'd come in. Oh, Johnny's asleep on the, why is it always Johnny? But okay. Um, uh, Rachel's asleep on the ground or Luke is asleep on the ground right now. So he's not, he's, he just came in really bad day and he just crashed on the beanbag chairs and he's out right now. Uh, should we wake him up? I really wouldn't do that right now. Or, or so that's one or like, Hey, we came in today, but the teacher was absent. Well, oh, I never got an email. The teacher was going to be absent. Well, can I do it with you? Well, we're kind of short-staffed, and the sub doesn't really know what they're doing. Wait, so no, not really. I was like, okay. Or what, can I come in in this time? Sure, I'll come in in this time. Oh, the switch, it got switched. We were going to have music on Tuesday, but now it's on Thursday because so-and-so. It's like there's always stuff that comes up. And I, as dedicated as I was to trying and as dedicated as they were to trying, and it worked, I would say it worked like 80% of how I envisioned it working. You know what I mean? Um, and, and what can you do about that? I mean, those sorts of, that's the real practical, what's happening day-to-day real life world of being in a school, you know, you get as close as you can get. And just from the, the private practice perspective, I feel this, I have the same problems. Well, first of all, I do go into the classrooms and I can relate to everything you're saying. <laughs> I'm like, well, I only come every few months. Like, what, what do you mean? Like, we can't like do what I was supposed to do. Like, this is really important. Um, but, you know, from a parent perspective and a, in the home perspective, there's always things that come up. It's like the sibling like is kind of yanking at mom and mom can't, mom has to go run or the phone rings and she's like, Oh, you know, it's our lawyer calling about the, you know, the IEP situation, you know, so all these things come up. And, um, I think that it's, it, it used to discourage me a lot. And I used to have this idea in my head and I was like, I have to execute it exactly how it is in my head. Um, and just life doesn't work like that. And, and, you know, you have to be flexible and kind of and shift um, and pivot. But I do think that having the ideal situation is always a good place to start in your head. Um, but being, you know, flexible and being kind to yourself when you don't, you, you know, you might not be totally there yet, but guess what? You're, you're, you're taking steps to get closer. So I think that that's the, that's the takeaway for me is we, we have amazing people like Jill Center and that Bob doing all this great work um, that we can aspire to. Totally. They are what they're doing and based on the research they've done and the research done by others, that's the gold standard to try and hold yourself to. Just like you said, that is a great way to put it. So you you strive towards that ideal and keep striving towards that ideal and you keep striving towards that ideal. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, without further ado, here's the interview with Jill Center and Matt Bod. So welcome back to Talking With Tech. Here I am with Rachel. How are you doing, Rachel? I'm good. And today we are joined with Matt Baud and Jill Center. Am I saying that right? Yes, you are. Hi, Awesome. Everyone. So tell us about, about yourselves. Um, I'm an assistive technology coordinator at Niles Township District for Special Education. That's in the north suburbs of Chicago. Primarily my role is facilitating the different evaluations, PD opportunities, tech support, the many hats that we wear in this role. I also do teach graduate level class in AAC and I have my own private practice where I see primarily AAC kiddos and do some private consultations. And awesome. I am 
owner and director of Technology and Language Center Incorporated, which is in Oak Park, Illinois, also a suburb of Chicago. I typically conduct evaluations of kiddos, provide therapy, consult with schools in the area, and then both Matt and I conduct workshops all over the country on implementing AAC. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons we wanted to invite you on is because you seem to have some expertise in the concept of partner augmented input and working with communication partners. So tell us a little bit about that. How did you get into it and what do you do with it? And I don't know, just let's talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's talk about it. Well, you know, I think partner augmented input is something that we talk a lot about because it is an evidence-based practice in AAC. And there are a number of research studies that have shown that there are multiple benefits of doing it. But Matt and I have both been training communication partners in a variety of strategies beneficial to children who use AAC for many, many years now. And one of the reasons why we got interested in communication partner instruction research was because when we started, we had primarily been giving a workshop or come in and do a, an in-service. And we really weren't getting very good generalization either with families or in the schools. And so we really started looking into that research about best practice in adult learning. What are some strategies that are known to be effective? What are those evidence-based strategies for teaching communication partners? And when we examined all that research, it was pretty clear that, you know, all the research related to partner for parent instruction and to school staff, that systematic approach was probably the most effective, especially when it included a variety of training elements such as strategy description, demonstration, practice, feedback, and coaching. And especially that coaching and performance feedback within the natural environment. And Kent Wallace McNaughton already pulled together all those training elements in their 2005 eight-step instructional model. So that's the model that we started using when we were teaching PAI. And when we look at those eight steps um, and how, how Kent Wallace McNaughton broke them down, that first step is pretest. So really, you know, getting a baseline of what's going on in the classroom at home. And then we get to step two which is strategy description. Basically, this is where we get our in-service component of our training. We go over the what, the why, and the how of PAI. So they have that background knowledge. They have some information behind it, some of the evidence why we use it. Um, and we go over our input strategies. So then in step three, which is strategy demonstration, this happens in the in-service part, but also happens live within the classroom or live at home or wherever we're working on using it. And this is where will show videos during the in-service part. And then for training parents, it's showing PAI in the home, different ways of parents actually doing it. And if we're working with classroom staff, we're actually showing classroom videos of PAI, what it really looks like in a real classroom. So that brings us to step four, verbal practice. Um, and this is where we use the mnemonic s'mores to help the parents, help the school staff remember those ingredients to successful modeling. Like, what is it? What's behind it? And we always go over it, and we'll use rehearsal a lot to remember it, and we use that first S for slow rate, that MO for model, that first R for respect and reflect, that second R for repeat, the E for expand, then the last S for stop. Yeah, and I think it's kind of funny because, you know, we sometimes hear people talk about doing s'mores training, but um, although s'mores has all of the critical elements that we use in modeling, um, that's really, as you can see, only one small step. That's only a, a single step, step four of an overall training program. So it's a really great, helpful strategy for helping people remember all of the steps and be able to recall them quickly in a classroom environment or in a home environment. But we also have several other steps, which are also critical parts of communication partner instruction. So step five is controlled practice and feedback. And this is where we do it in the in-service part. And we we also then do it live within the classroom or, or within the, the home. And this is where those partners have that opportunity of practice using PAI without a child present. So we take away some of that pressure, but then also within the natural environment with the child himself or herself. And then we get to step six. So this is that advanced practice. So it looks a lot like um, the control practice in step five, but this is only within the natural environment. And this is where we kind of step back. We fade our supports a little bit. We might use a little bit of the feedback afterwards with s'mores and tie everything together, but we step back. 
And then we get to step seven, that post-test and generalization. So this is where we're getting a picture of how far they've come along with the modeling, comparing it with the different activities from the pretest. And then the last step is generalization. So this is where we look at that communication partner using PAI with another activity, which really helps us kind of figure out how much have they carried over, as well as how many more maintenance check-ins they might need or more support after this using the eight steps. So this is awesome. This is exactly what I need to hear. And I bet what a lot of people need to hear because the problem you started with is exactly the problem that I think a lot of people are facing, which is either their administration thinks that like a one sort of training, you come for an hour and now you know how to do AAC, yep. you know, um, and really it's a, sort of an ongoing process that you, that you've just described how you break that down. So let, let me get into some questions. The first one being, you said you started with a pretest and then step seven is a post-test before you get to that generalization. What does that assessment look like? You know, because you're, you're trying to teach someone a skill. So I sort of, in my mind, I equate it to like a driving test, right? Like you take the written portion and then you have the skill of actually driving and there's sort of like the knowing what you need to do and then you actually have to do it with the kids. And so tell me what that looks like. Yes, yes. So, Chris, you, you bring up a really good point because there's an awesome quote by Jim Knight, who is an instructional coaching guru. And he says, we wouldn't teach someone to drive by giving them a lecture, tossing them a book, and turning them loose on the freeway. Nonetheless, when we provide traditional staff development in schools, that is pretty much what we do. And you are completely right. You know, we can't just expect someone to try to figure something out based on a textbook alone or based on a lecture alone. And so, yeah, the first step is uh, baseline. And very similarly, um, in the post-test, we, we also do the same thing. So what we actually do is we videotape. We select three activities, and these are three activities that are already occurring in the classroom or already occurring in the home environment. So it's, it's different for everybody, but there are three activities. And we have them videotape themselves participating in those three activities. So, for example, in our classroom study, the three activities were unique reading, speech, and also um, snack snack was the last one. And so we videotaped the staff interacting with kids during those activities. But then what we actually did was we sent staff their own videos to watch on their own. Um, evidence suggests that staff um, and also families like watching it alone and not with someone looking over their shoulder. Mm -hmm. You know, it gives them an opportunity to really process what they're seeing. And then give them some questions for reflection. So how do you think use of the communication device went? What do you think you'd need to do to improve the use of the communication device? What do we need to work on together? What are some of your goals? So we really kind of help people formulate goals. And another part of step one is also commitment to the program where they, they do make either verbal or written commitment. And then mm -hmm. we help them develop goals based on what they saw in baseline. And follow-up is pretty similar. We actually take the exact same three activities and then have people do the same thing. So now participate in the activity now that you've been through the training. Now what do you see? Reflect on, on what you're seeing. What do you still need to work on? What do you think looks really good, etc. I love the collaborative element of this because, you know, as we know, nobody learns when somebody just throws information at them, right? It's such, it's such an ongoing process. And so I just love that, you know, you're able to share with people and then, you know, let them kind of take the wheel and figure out, you know, where do I need to go? Where do I need to improve? Um, you know, just from uh, my experience, it never feels good when somebody tells you you're not doing something right. But if I can kind of get there on my own, um, you know, with all the, the the knowledge that I have, you know, I'm more likely to have a more optimistic outlook. I'm going to be more motivated to, to do better. Um, so I just love that, that component. Well, and I think that when you look at some of the literature, you actually see that when instructional coaching is not included, you actually have very low likelihood of generalization to the classroom environment. So possibly as low as 10% of, of individuals who attend a training will actually incorporate what you've told them without any type mm -hmm. of instructional coaching. So the coaching is important. And I think one of the things that we have taken from the instructional coaching literature is that coaching is collaborative. Coaching isn't someone telling you what to do and when to do it. Coaching is processing and problem solving and really teaming to help the individual learn what they need to learn to use it in the classroom. 
Yeah, I find coaching is like asking more questions than giving answers, which is a hard skill to learn in itself is how to coach. And so that's, again, perfect timing for me because I'm in the role of coaching others, right? And right now it's the beginning of the school year and uh, kids have moved from school to school and there are new teachers starting. And so here at the fresh start of the school year, I'm going to be starting this sort of ongoing coaching throughout the school year. And so I'm what kind of advice would you give me or other people like uh, who are in this role of coaching others? Where would you start to, with all of these, with all of this? What would be the first well, step? Well, I think just kind of what we talked about with our eight steps, like that first step is really critical. Like doing that pretest, that baseline, start videotaping right off the bat, get an idea, get that clear picture of reality, what's going on in that classroom. And, you know, when we kind of do it, we always say start with the pretest, but we make sure we progress through all the steps. So, know the plan and we also share the plan with the staff member they're doing here this is what we're going to do here's the eight steps that we're going to progress through and we also make sure that we check off a little check mark off of our implementation checklist so we have that fidelity checklist we make sure we check it because number one this makes sure our instruction is systematic they also know the expectation of what's going to happen i think that's big for for school staff members and parents at home like knowing what the expectation is going to be but it also ensures fidelity right because we would say how we teach our communication partners is as important as what we teach them so when you start start at that baseline have that fidelity laid out have the expectation set so everyone has that clear picture of what's going to happen throughout the year throughout the semester whatever it may be yeah, and there will be some variety regarding scheduling of each step. Yeah. So, for example, how frequently we meet. You know, if we meet weekly or if we meet monthly, depending on how far I have to travel to go to a school, for example. Um, some other things that might vary um, would be uh, which staff members we start working yeah. with. In some schools, they want us to start working with the certified staff and train the certified staff so that they can then help the instructional assistants and other individuals who are working in a classroom. So those are things that have, that, have, that have varied. But, you know, we have been asked to cut corners at time times, and when we have, we just haven't gotten good outcomes. So the, the real take-home message is that we learned that we just don't skip steps. So can I ask you a couple, two questions? One is, you said when people contact you, who, who, what's the role of the person that typically contacts you? Is it a classroom teacher? Is it a speech language pathologist? Is it an administrator? I think uh -huh. it, like for me being in the, in the classroom, in the school, so being in a special education co-op, I have nine districts too that I support plus the co-op. Um, so it varies. Sometimes it's administrators um, that are doing it. So that kind of approach, like they've identified maybe areas of need for a staff or a specific teacher, or maybe there's, a, you know, like they have lawyers and advocates in place. So they just want to make sure Sometimes it's just speech path themselves, like saying, I need more support. Can you come into that classroom and help me identify? Or sometimes for other places, it's going to be the principal of the building. It kind of depends the layout of, of, the, the, of the leadership team it might be, or if speech paths or teachers really know about what the protocol is. In our district, certain people know who, are, who does what, so they can come and say, hey, can you come in and help me coach with using the devices better? So then they know they're going to go through the eight steps. And regarding my role is a little bit different being in a private practice, you know, sometimes I'm actually contacted by advocates, attorneys, things like that. If there's an independent evaluation and a due process where they've identified that there's a need and then I can go in and I can do training with school staff. But, you know, both Matt and I have actually been doing quite a bit with um, very forward thinking school districts that want to train all of their staff. Yep. And so we're going into different programs and we're either they're doing train the trainer programs where we're teaching people how to implement this in their schools or we're doing more of an elementary beginning procedure of going through the eight steps actually with the staff. So sometimes that includes spending a couple days afterwards going into the classrooms with the teachers and uh, doing some instructional coaching on site after we've done the in-service talking about it and giving people an opportunity to do the controlled practice. And like our whole goal in our district was about building capacity. So like identifying, so it can't, it shouldn't be an AT coordinator, it shouldn't be an outside consultant. So Again, training all those staff members really helps. And in our district, it's a speech pass doing it now within their own classroom. So it's not about bringing in somebody and doing it. It's kind of part of the process. 
Gotcha. How long do you think, I mean, I know it's variable, like you said, with the scheduling, but uh, how long in general would you think each step takes? Like, if you could do it all at once, do you know what I mean? (laughs) Put it all, like, you know, it might take an entire year to get through it, but if you you look at the actual minutes you were spending, uh, what do you think? What, how long... Well, if, if you look at, we actually did publish our school staff instruction study, and that total program was, I believe, 15 or 16 hours. Yep. The family study was um, each parent attended eight or nine coaching sessions, and then they had a three-hour initial, so very similar. But the real key, and I think that this is critical, is that you really can't do it all at once. You know, you can't just try to cram it in all at one, in one day because it does take time to practice a skill, and people do need coaching over time. And that's one of the things, if you look at some of the communication partner um, literature that you see, is that people really need to have sufficient time to be able to integrate and use this skill. So there are different levels of impact of of learning, of of any type of training that you might attend. And um, without, without boring everybody to tears, you know, our goal is to get everybody to the last step, which is application and problem. Problem solving. That's basically that unconscious competence. That's where we can use this partner augmented input without even really concentrating on it. It's like when you've, when, you know, people are first learning to drive a car, they have to concentrate really hard. They can't have the music on in the background. They can't, can't drink anything when they're in the car, you know, um, and then as they get more comfortable, you can do it with more automaticity. Mm -hmm. And that's really where we want to get people who are using partner augmented input. We want to get them to that application and problem solving level where they can use partner augmented input along with other strategies already in their repertoires. And so that, that is, that is really encouraging in some regard, because if you think about it, like, well, somewhere between, what did you say, 16 to 18 hours Mm -hmm. to get to that stage? Yes. Yes. Broken up into small mini chunks is very doable in a school year. You know what I mean? Where yeah, if it was 18 hours all at once, you'd be like, what? <laughs> but if you're breaking it up into small chunks, how often, you know, what is your duration usually when you are in at any given stage? You know? um, depending on like the activity. So it might be generally we would do like 30 minute activities, but sometimes the reality of the classroom, they might do 10, 15 minute blocks. So that's how we choose it because we stick to the schedule of the classroom. So if they have that reading or that game activity for that 15 or 20 minute block, we sit to that. So that's when we're in the classroom. We're not changing their schedule at all. We're going in and I think that's where the buying comes in with the staff. Like we're not coming in and changing how they want to do it. We're just using the already schedule. So time frame it really varies from school to school, but I know a lot of our schools now are doing 20 minute blocks or sometimes 15 minute blocks with activities. And that's what I'll use when I go in there and kind of coach them. I don't change that up. And I, and I think you make a really good point. I think when you go into a classroom or even a home with a parent, there's this like scarcity mindset with time. It's like, there's no time. We have no time. And it doesn't take a lot of time. And I just love that you guys are talking about naturally incurring environments and routines because that's the, the, the quickest way that I've found in my practice to get buy-in. It's like, you don't have to change what activity you're doing. You know, find something that you're already doing. Um, you know, we know from like forming habits and all of the research from that, that, you know, you have to find triggers that happen every single day and what better way to start incorporating it than to do something that you're already, you know, sitting at circle time at, at 9.15. Um, here's how you can use the device or you're already brushing your teeth before bed. Here's how we can use the device. Yeah. Um, so I think that's really important. Yes, absolutely. And, and that's, that's, that's critical and something that the literature has shown to be incredibly important. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're talking about time, we're not only talking about time for the teachers who are trying to implement it, but we're also talking about time for the coaches. And so what we've really organized in a lot of school districts is just kind of a shift in thinking. So it doesn't actually require speech language pathologists to have extra minutes assigned per se, but maybe instead of pulling out, they're pushing in. And maybe instead 
instead of the instructional assistant going um, and working with another student during that time, the instructional assistant stays so that person gets to benefit from some coaching and also from some strategy demonstration in the classroom itself. And so it's really subtle shifts, but it makes a very significant difference in terms of implementing AAC in the classroom and at home. Yeah, and I think within our district, we use a lot of block scheduling, so that's how it naturally occurs. So that's kind of pushed down from the administration, say, let's use that block scheduling, be in there for extended time within the classroom so that you can coach the different partners that are in the classroom over and over, whether it's paras, other related staff, as well as that teacher. It's a nice, natural opportunity without rescheduling your schedule. All right. So you've been doing this for a little while now. And so you've probably worked with a, quite a number of different people that have been trying to implement this. What's some advice you'd give them, like a mistake you see them make? Don't do that. Do this instead. Yeah, um, I, I think that's a really good question. Um, there's a great article by Fixin in which he says, it has been well documented in many disciplines that major gaps exist between what is known as effective practices, so theory and science, and what is actually done policy and practice. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we recently heard your interview with Carol Zangari in which I think you asked her what, what we needed more research in an AAC and she said, we need to scale up interventions that work mm -hmm. and invest mm -hmm. in implementation science. And I was like, amen. Um, <laughs> actually out loud, I'm sure people were looking at me like I was crazy when I was listening on the plane. But um, we know that PAI is evidence-based and we know that teaching partners using the eight-step instructional model is evidence-based. So let's reduce that gap between what is known and what is actually done so that more people are doing things that Carol referred to as acceptable practices. Mm -hmm. You know, let's just do what we know. So rather than doing things that we've always, ways we've always done them, do what we know is effective. I guess that would be my replacement. Matt, did you have anything different or were you, yep, yep nope, Matt, what she said. <laughs> okay, so again, someone who's, people invested in this and you've been doing uh, partner augmented input and teaching people about this for a while now, you've probably got this lockdown. What are your next things? What are you curious about? What do you want to learn more about when it comes to AAC? Well, like right now, we're currently starting to develop an online module for parents so that they can have the same access to training materials as our research participants using some of the telepractice and maybe even some live coaching for people that can't be maybe in the city areas or more rural areas or in areas that don't have a lot of AAC support. So that should help. But we're also interested in sibling research and their instruction in AAC and look at using this eight-step instructional model with other evidence-based strategies that we use for AAC. I love that you mentioned the telepractice and the online thing because I've been, I, I'm in LA and traffic's terrible and I'm like, listen guys, I can't, I just can't travel like an hour and a half, like 10 miles to see you. Um, so I've been doing a lot of online stuff and it's been really interesting because you know, my initial reaction and a lot of my clients' initial reaction is like, no, this is not going to be effective. We don't want to do it. But it's been really interesting. So, you know, just having videos sent to me that I can, you know, review before our call. And then sometimes I'll even, you know, they'll set up the, I've had my the phone set up and I'm watching a session. So I'll watch an ABA session and I'll be coaching in real time for the right. ABA therapist what to do. Um, so it's just really interesting how we can utilize technology, um, you know, for that coaching piece. And yeah. it's just, I mean, everybody has a phone now. Everyone can, mm -hmm. you know, do the video call or whatever. And it's really, it's really interesting how that's shifting. Yeah, and we there's actually a fair body of, of research looking at using uh, telepractice for coaching, um, not necessarily in AAC, but just in other practices like, for example, early intervention. And so I think that that is something that if a person can't get to you either because of horrific traffic, and Chicago, the Chicago yeah. metro area is very similar. Um, we live in the same city and we rarely see each other live because we live 
live so far apart. Um, <laughs> but so yeah, so whether it's because you're far apart or because you live in a very rural area, you know, when I used to teach at University of Wyoming, that state, the entire state had a population of 500,000 people. So it wasn't uncommon to have a town of population 10 and be separated from the next nearest town by over an hour drive through the mountains. And so, you know, doing some things this way really helps make resources available to more families. So that's definitely something that we're looking and doing. I mean, we have a uh, school staff training DVD that uh, or we've been using with a lot of teams. So for example, it actually goes through parts of steps one through five of this model. And so teams can watch the video and pause to actually do the exercises. So then we can just come in and do the coaching element um, or someone on the ground there can do the coaching element. But we're really looking at ways to help make this something, as I said previously, you know, the reality, the way that we actually practice doing what we know mm -hmm. is is, is evidence-based practice. I also love the fact that you mentioned working with the siblings. I know that's something I have just started to do, and it is not in this ongoing capacity that you're talking about. It is, again, one of the, uh, bring them in, I'm going to talk to you for an hour or so, and we're going to play with the device and let you mm -hmm. know what your brother and sister or cousin mm -hmm. in some cases are using, which, again, better than nothing, but not as good as, as ongoing practice, mm -hmm. you know? And so I find that as another kind of unique challenge everywhere is how to build um, doing the ongoing practice in the school and doing the ongoing practice with families at home and trying to bring those two worlds together, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, in a recent study um, that was also done by mm -hmm. Kent Walsh and some of her colleagues, um, there was some discussion that it was a meta-analysis of communication partner instruction, and they actually suggested that communication partner instruction is intervention. So now I think both Matt and I have shifted a little bit. Mm -hmm. When people come and they say, we want therapy, uh, rather than taking a kid in a room for 45 minutes once a week and, you know, mom goes to Starbucks, what we actually have started doing is to have the parent tra uh, training component and also including siblings yep. and other uh, family members, caregivers, initially before we even get started doing any therapy so that there is better generalization so that we do have more of an ongoing mm -hmm. support. And it is therapy. It's therapeutic to teach a communication partner to work with the child who uses AAC. And just like you were saying about the parents and schools and trying to bridge that gap, it's something that you know, we always have fought with our private side of it, but even in the schools, like we do a lot of parent academies and, and other training workshops where, you know, the siblings that all can come, there's also daycare covered. So there's a lot of those resources built for all our parents that always come in and do them, but it's not always getting that carryover because it's a workshop style type of programming. So even this year, what our district really is trying doing is we're going to still have to do it within the school environment, just based on the nature of how we are. But we have it where we're doing more of a class where they're coming in, they're going to go through the steps, they're going to have the opportunity to record themselves at home, but then come into, into the school and have that have the childcare set up for them so they don't have to worry, have dinner, have all that kind of stuff set so that they can go through the in-service and go through different steps, but we're not going to be able to coach within the house, but we're going to coach within the school with the parent, with the actual speech therapist, hopefully based on activities they do at home. So we're going to try to bridge that gap, bring the two worlds together. And we know there's a lot of barriers that we can't overcome, but we're hoping to bring some of that together and still use the eight steps and kind of bring it in there. I'm sure there's going to be some things we run into, but we're, we're, we're hoping that we have that tied together. I have a really fun question. I want to know how you guys met. Oh, oh, I'm going to let Matt answer that one. <laughs> oh, so um, I went to St. Xavier University on the south side of Chicago for my undergrad as well as graduate program. And Jill, when I was my first year of grad, was um, a professor. I was a brand new she, professor. She, she yeah. was a brand new professor. And she was actually teaching my neuro class at that point. And I think I probably said some comment that she overheard <laughs> about AAC and something. And she put a little note in my mailbox, just come see me. I'll talk you through. It was about bliss symbols and with aphasia. And it was that kind of moment she started brainwashing me slowly. Sure. <laughs> 
but a lot of different awesome opportunities in grad school to have a lot of AAC. And then that's when I started working in a clinic part-time when I was working in the schools and there it just blew up from there. That was 15 years ago, yeah. 20 years ago. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. And isn't it so funny how one subtle thing can kind of shift your trajectory and yeah. make a really big impact? <laughs> yes. That's yeah, yeah. It's fantastic. Well, it's serendipity. Yeah. <laughs> So tell us, you mentioned there's the DVD. Where else, where yeah. can people find that? And where can people reach out to you? Where can they learn more? Yeah, we have a lot of resources on the Technology and Language Center website, which is www.talcaac.com, many of which are free. We have a PAI handout, um, links to archived webinars that we've done on partner augmented input and also on communication partner instruction. So I would say that is the best way to see all of our materials. We have information on upcoming workshops uh and other events also listed there awesome well we'll definitely have that link in the show notes so everyone can be able to go right over there and check it all out before we go i always ask the same question to all the people that we interview if you had a billboard that every slp could see what would it say <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> model 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 s'mores yeah no, i <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that's a really good one. I think that one of the things that we see still to this day in the Chicago metropolitan area is that we get referrals for AAC pretty late. I would say it's shifted. You know, the average age of our referrals used to be 11, 12, and now it's down to maybe five or six years. But, you know, Refer early. Don't AAC, wait. yeah, don't wait. AAC doesn't, you know, interfere with speech development. Um, those would be all of my billboards. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that. It's such a, it's so important too. And I think now everyone's kind of becoming a lot more comfortable with technology because everyone has technology around them all the time. Um, but yeah, I just, even when I see a kiddo who's six or seven, I'm like, oh my gosh, like there's so much time that's been wasted um, that we could have been doing so much. So I completely, I I, I would have that billboard too. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for being here. This was so, I cannot wait to get this out to everybody. Uh, and cause it's so important for people to realize this is the way to train and to coach other people it's for people to learn. This is the way for people to learn. That's the best way to say it. Uh, cause it can't just happen all in one shot. Well, thank you so much. I mean, we, re we greatly appreciate this opportunity to chat with you yep. guys and, uh, and and thanks for getting the word out. <laughs> I'm gonna take a selfie. Oh, oh no! Show up on the screen. <laughs> Welcome back to Talking with Tech. That was such an amazing interview with Jill Center and Matt Bod. I'm so excited to have them on. They just taught me so much, and I just what I feel really inspired. How about you, There's Chris? They're superstars. They're superstars. And, you know, I know for a fact that those two specifically are on Twitter, so you can follow them and keep learning from them beyond this podcast episode. So definitely check them out on Twitter. You can check us out on Twitter, too. We're at Talking With Tech. And if you haven't joined our Facebook group, there's been a lot of discussions going on in there. I'm really excited to read everything that everyone posts. If you have a question, that's the place to, to ask it. Um, just go in there, join the group, ask a question, and we have really lively discussions in there about everything related to AAC. So just find us by searching Talking With Tech. And you know what we're going to say next? We're going to ask you to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already done that. And if you have already done that, then please share the podcast with somebody else. Show them how to subscribe uh, so that we can keep getting this word out because I, hopefully you find some value in the podcast that it, it needs to be spread to other people or why else should you be listening? So once again, I'm Chris Bouguet with Rachel Madel, and this was Talking With Tech. We'll see you next week.